Um, I love being in here and this whole experience. When we get to the Word, I dwell on this during the week. I think about where the Father would have me to go with it. I've been excited these few weeks to really focus on the Gospel reading from our Christian lectionary, to watch the Christian story unfold. Today is Transfiguration Sunday in much of the, the Western church world. Uh, in the Orthodox church world, it's way up at the end of the summer. It's not all the ch- Christian calendars fall in concordance with one another. But we're not in the Orthodox Eastern world, we're in Western world. And so in our context, many churches and many gospel places today are celebrating Transfiguration Sunday, the day that Jesus goes to the top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he transfigures, a word that doesn't get used in everyday English anymore, but a word that we're going to dig into today because it has an amazing spiritual implication, not just for historically. I've already talked to you today about don't get analytical. Listen, this is one of those, if you're an analytical and everything's got to make sense, you're going to hate this sermon. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to tell you straight up, you're going to go, you mean to tell me two people from the Old Testament manifest on top of a mountain and Jesus shines like a white light and then they disappear and then a voice actually comes out of heaven? You go, oh, I don't buy any of this. So if you struggle with the, re- the reason on the analytical, you'll struggle with this. But if, you're, if your heart's open to the Scriptures trying to tell you bigger stories, then buckle up because this is quite a story. And it's not just a story. It's, it's a, a connection, as we've already heard in the readings. It's a connection to things old. It's an anticipation of things new. The best stuff in the world, by the way, is a connection to something old with an anticipation of something new. I mean, that's the best stuff in the world. That's why family's so important to you. Because you connect to the old, you got your memories, but it's not over with. You got tomorrow and you got seasons and you got stuff, you got vacations, you got Christmas, you got futures. Connect to the old, grab the new. That's the faith at its best, by the way. That's why we take the Eucharist. That's why we pray the Apostles' Creed. We reach back to things bigger than us that are rooted way deeper than we are. And we don't just live in them. We pull them into our present and we anticipate them in our future. And that gives our faith legs. It makes it run. It doesn't leave it stale sitting. It gives it a future and it gives it a hope. No greater chance to see that than the message of transfiguration. Because it's the old, it's the present, it's the promise. All wrapped into one. And it's not just a story about Jesus. As you can probably imagine, it's a story about you. Because stories about Jesus are spectacular, but when they become applicable and they become about me in a way that can affect my life, my Monday can be different than my Sunday, then we've got something. Now, we already heard the text read today, but I want to reread one verse. So go to Mark 9. Our gospel reading encompassed verses 2 all the way down through verse 9. And 10, but I want to read two because there's a line in there that really sets us up for the entire story. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves because a lot of the best things in your spiritual walk will happen apart from the hustle and bustle. And he was transfigured before them. Look at that line. And he was transfigured before them. Mark 9, 2. Now I'm reading from the New King James. I'm doing that specifically today because I like that line at the end of the verse. He was transfigured before them. That would be my title today. And I want to leave it for a little bit so that I can talk to you about the story. And we're going to come back to that and make that our focus. But 
Let's start with the big word, the word that's not, we don't use transfigured. I don't think anybody's ever used that word outside of the mountain of transfiguration in day-to-day -day conversation. It's not a common word, but it is a, th a thought that you're familiar with, just maybe not a word you're familiar with. It comes from the Greek word. I, I, let, me, let me play ABCs here for a second. I know everybody's smarter than this, but I always just want to take, I just want to cover this base for those that might not have ever thought about it. Bible wasn't written in English. Okay. You go, well, it looks like it's written in English. Yes, yours is written in English, but it wasn't written in English. It's just been translated in English. So a lot of times we have to say things like the Greek word right here because it was written in Greek. All right. Let me make it even harder. Jesus didn't speak Greek. <laughs> Jesus is probably speaking Aramaic. Once in a while, maybe a little bit of Hebrew. Jesus didn't write this. This was written by Mark, who's hearing Jesus speak Aramaic, but using Greek words. So Mark picks a word to describe what is happening. He picks a word, and the word he picks is the Greek word metamorpho. Now, metamorpho appears four times in the New Testament. Two of those four times are in the mountain of transfiguration. Once in Matthew, once in Mark. Luke chooses a different word when he tells it. John doesn't even tell it. But in Mark and Matthew, metamorpho. It appears again in Romans. It appears again in 2 Corinthians. Can you guess where we'll end up today in our scripture readings? Okay, that's a little tip in case you need some time to look them up. We'll be there. But metamorpho is a Greek word from two Greek words, combination words, compound words. Meta meaning change and morph meaning form. When we morph into something, we're molding the form into something else. But it leads to a big English word we all know, metamorphosis. Now, metamorphosis is also not a word we use much in the English, but it is a word we understand. How do caterpillars become butterflies? They, there's a metamorphosis that happens. And at the heart of it, a metamorphosis is when one thing changes into another thing, but not another thing in which it was not in the beginning. It merely becomes what it was born to be. Okay, if it metamorphosizes, it becomes what it was destined to be, what was already in there. So in every caterpillar is an expression of a butterfly. I hope I'm not being too out there. I think everybody understands this. We just don't think about it a lot. A butterfly isn't born a butterfly. It's born a caterpillar, but the caterpillar isn't destined to die a caterpillar. There's something else that's supposed to happen. A metamorphosis happens. Now, we borrowed that word from the Greeks, because the Greeks had a word for when you change into another form. But very specifically, it's an odd word, you change not into just the form you want to be. There's a whole different word for that we'll get into. You change into a form of what you really are. Okay, think about that. You don't just change into what you want to be, you change into what you are. Now how can you change into what you are? Aren't you already that? That's a metamorphosis. That's when you're more than meets the eye. Like you're something, but inside of you is a code. A DNA, maybe too much of a word. Something in your genes is supposed to be something else that given enough time explodes and comes out. We like this idea in fantasy. We like Peter Parker going on a school field trip and getting bitten by a radioactive spider. And the radioactive spider turns Peter Parker into a human spider. 
but it does it from the inside out. I know I'm using a crazy illustration to get to a spiritual point, but it kind of works. Like we know who Spider-Man is and we know why he's Spider-Man. He didn't just decide to put on a red and blue suit one day and slide it over and go, let's see if I can jump from one building to the next. That's not going to work very well. That's Peter trying to be something he's not, but instead become something else. Okay, get off the secular illustration. It's not, it's not very good. Let's get back to the spiritual, all right? Because we got a much better story than Peter getting bit by a spider. I say that so that you'll realize the change that's about to happen isn't a change from the outside in, but from the inside out. And if it's possible in Jesus, I hope you can see where this is going. If it's possible in Jesus, it's possible in me. And just as God loved Jesus just the way he was, the Jesus in his full glory was not the Jesus they saw with their eyes. That's the Jesus at the top of transfiguration. And God doesn't love the Jesus that's not transfigured less than he loves the Jesus that's transfigured. It's still Jesus. He loves us all. He loves the totality of who Christ is. Therefore, he loves the totality of of who I am. And so that's transfiguration in a nutshell. It, it, it's, it's based on that word morph. It's, and to morph is, is not just what you are, um, not just what you appear to be, but what you are much deeper below the surface. So let's, let's, let's talk story. They go to the top of the mountain. All of a sudden, a cloud. There's the word bright pops up a lot. Three times this story is told, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three, bright appears. At one point, there's a bright cloud. Uh, at one point, Jesus shines bright. Another point, Mark, I think, says his clothes are whiter than any launderer could launder them, one English translation says. And so all three writers are infatuated with the brightness at the top of the mountain to the point that they all talk about it. It's not just an ancillary idea. It's the idea. Like, I, I go up this mountain and boom, there's an explosion of light. And in this explosion of light, something happens. And when the light starts to subside a bit, there's Moses and there's Elijah. Peter, James, and John recognize them, though there's no pictures of Moses and Elijah. This has always been, this is one of those moments where you got to get poetic. All right. You go, how would they know Moses? Because if you're real analytical, I told you you're going to hate this story. Because you're up there going, how do they know it's Moses and Elijah? They don't have a picture of Moses. There's no internet search, Google images. What did Elijah look like? Like they don't know, but yet they know that they're standing in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And for, and for three good Hebrew boys, Peter, James, and John, raised in Judaism, Moses and Elijah represent something very, very big. Moses represents the law. Everything in Torah that's instructional is in Moses. Elijah represents the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament which is God speaking to his people, because that's what prophets do, is represented in Elijah. But they also represent both the dead and the living. Moses died. Their idea is Elijah didn't. So standing at the top of the mountain are the living and the dead. That's everybody of all time represented in the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. The living and the dead standing at the top of the mountain with Jesus. And Luke's gospel tells us that they talk about Jesus' decease. Decease, death. They talk about his pending death, what he's about to do. Did you know the word in the Greek for decease is exodus? Which is what the second book of your Bible was called. Did you know the second book of your Bible is called exodus? Because that's the Greek title of the second book of your Bible. And it means to come out. 
it, it literally means to die. The book of Exodus is the death to slavery for the children of Israel. It's death to Egypt living so that they can resurrect in a promised land. It's prefacing Jesus stepping into your death, dying as a ransom to your slavery, your sin, yourself, so that you can be born again in a newness of life. Jesus is standing at the top of the mountain talking about his exodus, talking about his own death. Moses and Elijah are aware of the death that's about to happen. Jesus is stepping into the fullness of why he come to the earth. He come to the earth to die. Peter makes a comment, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three little houses. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I've never read that and not chuckled a little bit. I've never preached it and not had somebody in the room chuckle because it's such a silly thing to say. But if you'll put yourself in Peter's mindset for a minute, it's not so crazy. Let me tell you why it's not so crazy because Peter's a Jew. And the Jews have what they call the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. And what happens is the children of Israel would have a celebration every year in which they all built tents, a booth, a temporary structure, and they slept in it, and they lived in it for a while to reenact their forefathers' journey through the wilderness. They were very hands-on with their religion. We're, we're entering Lent. I'll talk about that next week a little bit, but we're entering a season where the church for a couple thousand years has decided to replay the best that they can. A lot of church cultures observe Lent, and Lent is the practice of giving up something for the 40 days in front of Easter. And we do that not as a legalism, like you got to do this or God won't bless you, but we do it as a way of participating with the Jesus in the wilderness. So Jesus is suffering, and we go, what could I suffer through for 40 days? You know, and we usually pick easy stuff. Like, well, I won't, I'm going to not be angry. <laughs> you know, like, like, no more chips for me for 40 days. You know, whatever. I don't, I, you know, no more nachos. I don't know. We always, usually we pick something that benefits us in the long run to, to give up for Lent. But the whole purpose of that, and we'll get into a little bit more of this next week. We're coming up on Ash Wednesday. And, and no, I'm not, I'm not dropping this on you like, hey, this is what we're going to do. I, I'm just, I'm just sharing with you where the church world is on this. But suffering is part of that experience. Okay, Peter's, Peter's from a culture that goes, we have a celebration every year. We build little booths and we go sleep in them as a way of remembering what happened in the wilderness. We're coming up on that in this story. They're coming up on Feast of Tabernacles, most likely. Peter thinks, and, and, and listen, Feast of Tabernacles was an anticipation. We go, remember, we reach into the past so that we can celebrate the future. We reach into the past where we used to live as slaves, we used to live in tents in the middle of the wilderness, but we know we're going to have a house that's ours. We've got a permanent dwelling coming. It's called the kingdom of God. This is what Peter's thinking. We have a kingdom coming. And so it's good for us to be here because we're at the threshold of the kingdom, Jesus. Let's build three booths. Let's build booths that are representatives of the house you're going to build on the earth. It's actually not a silly request. It's Peter grabbing his heritage dragging it into the present because he sees Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. My God, there's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. This is good. We're here, man. It doesn't get any better than this. And our tomorrows are about to change, Peter goes. This is his thinking. Our tomorrows are about to change. The kingdom's here. And then the story takes a real hard left turn because they get drowsy. 
Peter, James, and John at the top of the mountain. And when they open their eyes, only Jesus is standing on the top of the mountain. Moses and Elijah are gone. And a voice comes out of heaven that says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Meaning that no longer do you see Moses and Elijah, you only see Jesus. And meaning that God just spoke and said, stop listening to anyone but Jesus. Which tells all of us who are Jesus followers, I don't know anybody in here that's a Moses follower. None of you got saved by believing in the prophet Elijah. You didn't get saved by believing in Moses. You got saved because you met Jesus. Jesus is the one left on the field in your heart, right? He's the only one left on the field at transfiguration. That's it. And the voice says, he's the only one you need to listen to, which tells me my faith is not built on Moses. My faith is not built on Elijah. I have a lot to learn from reading the Ten Commandments or reading the Torah, but I am not righteous by the Ten Commandments or the Torah. I am not made the righteousness of God because I observe Jewish practice. I eat at Jewish festivals because I'm circumcised or have a Saturday Sabbath, because I slaughter lambs or go to a temple, because I tithe into an Old Testament priesthood. None of those things can make me righteous. I am not under the obligation of Moses. I do not listen to him for my salvation. I do not listen to Elijah for my salvation. I am not hearing God call me back to a performance covenant lest my enemies destroy me. I'm not hearing the message that Elijah gives of I'm the man of God and you either believe it or die. And that's a message that Elijah preaches and literally slaughters people at the end of the sword. I'm not in a faith that turns to violence when people disagree with me. I'm not in a faith that's allowed to pick up the instruments of war of the world so that we win, so that the good guys win. We pick up the instruments of the Elijahs. I'm not allowed to. And you know why? Because he disappeared at transfiguration. And God said, this is my son. Listen to him. My faith then has to revolve around what I hear of Jesus. If I can't see it in Jesus, I can't make it part of my faith. If I can't hear it in Jesus, I can't make it part of my conversation. I can't make it part of who I am as a child of God if I can't find it in Jesus. But that, that's as liberating and that's exciting. But flip that coin. If I find it in Jesus, then I better take it serious. So when I hear Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, I better pay attention. When I watch Jesus deal with his enemies, I better watch carefully. When I see how Jesus handles those who mishandle him, I better follow his step. Love who he loves. Set free whom he sets free. Live a life of no condemnation. Step into the burdens of my neighbor. Love them as myself. Love my enemies as an expression of loving my neighbor. I'm required to do this. Why? Because this is my beloved son. Hear him. If I take God serious, then I take the transfiguration as God stepping me out of everybody else and into the Jesus world. Stepping me out. I can grab my past and pull it forward, but I cannot grab my past as an expression, as, as, the, as the identity of my faith. I can grab my past to learn from. I can grab my past to be instructed by. But I cannot let my past define my future. My future can only be defined by Christ on the other side of the vanishing of that which I used to be. 
And so out of that, Jesus shines like a great light. No one left on the field but Jesus. Now I want to use a little play on words. Back to verse 2. My sentence that I said would be my title. He was transfigured before them. I use this as a play on words because I know that what the New King James means is Jesus was transfigured while they watched. That's what it means before you. I stand before you today means I stand up here where you can see me. Transfigured before you means you can see him transfigured. But if you use a little play on words, it could mean he was transfigured before they were, right? Transfigured before them. And you know, it'd be a silly way to say it if transfiguration wasn't your destiny. But I already told you this word appears four times in the New Testament. And then only two of them are on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, the other two have to do with us. Which means that Jesus becomes, just as his resurrection is the first fruits of everybody else who resurrects, Jesus' transfiguration becomes the first transfiguration of all of all of us who are going to transfigure. So, Romans chapter 12. Go with me to the Apostle Paul. In what is... A pretty fascinating text in regard to living your daily life. It's also a pretty fascinating literary move Paul makes here. We'll, get, we'll dig into that in a moment. Look at this as far as how you live your daily lives. I think it's pretty, pretty exciting in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I want you to, re- to, to just hone in for just a second. And I know this is, a, this is sort of a sidebar to this sermon, but you need it. This is one of those things that... You can use it. You've been, you've been told in Romans 12:1 to be a living sacrifice. Most of us, our entire lives of Christianity, have looked at Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice. Right? We've went, they used to kill lambs, and then they killed the lamb, and Jesus was a sacrifice when he died. I'm not here to say we're wrong. I'm here to say that that's not the best way to understand what Jesus came to do. Because if Jesus, and, and, and I, I don't want to get into the depths of all the things the cross are because, my goodness, the cross is a lot of stuff. We don't have that kind of time on a Sunday morning. But if we only see Jesus' death as a sacrifice, what was his life? Just prep work for the cross? And that's led us to silly little Christian statements like Jesus only came to earth to die. I disagree. If Jesus only came to earth to die, then you don't need to pay attention to how he lived. And you can just ignore big bulks of the Gospels because that's just Jesus living. (laughs) You don't need Jesus living. And then you don't even need Jesus talking. And now you're in trouble because this is my beloved son. Hear him. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so if your theology runs up against something that's God, don't ask God to change. (laughs) Change your theology. And so then it becomes, I need to pay attention to his life. Why? Because I'm being told to be a living sacrifice, which means that my whole life is a sacrifice. Where do you think Paul got that idea? That's Jesus. Jesus' entire life is a sacrifice. Every day of his life is, Dad, what do you want me to do today? Do I turn left? Do I turn right? What do you want me to say? I am so convinced of this. I think we have hidden clues in the Gospels, if we'll pay attention to them, where the writers got confused by Jesus, but what Jesus is actually doing is listening to his dad. Let me give you one. 
They brought a woman before Jesus caught in the act of adultery, and they got rocks, and they're going to throw them at her and kill her. And they say, Moses says we should stone her to death. What do you think we ought to do? And Jesus reaches down and doodles in the sand. Now, we've spent 2,000 years trying to figure out what he wrote. Do you know why the Bible doesn't tell you what he wrote? Because it doesn't matter. But do you know why the Bible tells you that he doodled? Because it matters. Because some decisions you're about to make are so big, you better take a pause and listen to Daddy. Because this is a life hanging on the line. And so Jesus goes, and I think while he's down here, he says, Dad, this is a big one. I mean, we got to get this right. And they're cornering me because they're using Moses against me. Moses says we got to stone her to death. And they've asked me what I'm going to do, but I know that's not your heart, Dad. What do you want to do? And Jesus, of course, he without sin among you, you go ahead and kill her. I'm not saying you can't kill her. I'm just saying you better be qualified. (laughs) And then he goes back to doodling because he's not out of it yet. Right? He still has to deal with her. And so he goes back to doodling because he's like, how do you deal with her now? Like, what do I say to her? And you might be saying, well, you're way oversimplified. Jesus never acted that way. I I don't know. Maybe I am oversimplifying. Maybe I'm overemphasizing it, but I got to believe there's been some times in life where you should just reach down and go, I'm going to be quiet right now and just doodle a little bit and see what dad says. And the next time Jesus looks up, he says, woman, where are your accusers? She goes, I don't have any. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And it's, it's all kinds of layers. It's Jesus ain't afraid to get his hands dirty for you. It's, it's Jesus knows how to write your destiny in the sand. But, but at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, it's Jesus, a living sacrifice. Now, I'm being invited to be a living sacrifice, and so are you. And that's Paul's invitation. Okay, now, if you could get that, you'll be miles ahead of where you are today. I'll be miles ahead of where I am today because I can live my life as a living sacrifice. What, what would that mean for my soul? If I could do that, that's verse two. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Please under, underline if you're an underliner. This is why I like hard copies of the Bible. Maybe you got that highlight feature on your digital one. I'd, I'd highlight conformed and I'd highlight transformed. Paul's doing a literary play on words right here in the Greek. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the way, Paul uses the word eon for world. He doesn't use the word cosmos. Paul is not saying don't be conformed to the way the world is. He's saying don't be conformed to the age, to the spirit of this world. It's a different thing. Okay? You're, more, you're conformed to the way the world is. They wear shirts, you wear shirts. They wear pants, you wear pants. They drive cars, you drive cars. That's okay. That's being conformed to the cosmos. That's surviving on the planet. That's not conformed to the spirit of the age. Because the spirit of the age is often greedy, lustful, jealous, and violent, and retributive. And you're being told not to conform to the spirit of the age, to the age that's around you, instead to be transformed. Conformed is the word syschematazo, where we get scheme. Don't worry about pronouncing words. Syschematazo, where we get the word scheme. You're scheming. But here's the beauty of, here's, here's why syskematazo is important. Because syskematazo merely means to fashion yourself like something else. It's to look at someone else and try to be like they are. That's 
molding the outside, the attitude, the way you live, so that you can conform to someone else's standard. We do it as Christians a lot. We go, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so we do it. It's not an actual change. It's fake it till you make it. Right? And we're a fake it till we make it society because that's the spirit of the age. That's siskimatazo. That's conformity so that you look like everything else. Paul goes, don't conform to the spirit of the age. Instead, be transformed. Transformed? Metamorpho. Same word that's transfigure in the Gospels. Paul is telling you to do what Jesus did. Okay, well, that's impossible. First of all, I'm not going to go to the top of a mountain, have Moses and Elijah show up, and my clothes turn like the whitest laundry in the world, and then God speak out of heaven. And, and once again, if you're just a literalist, that's where you'll land with this. But if it means so much more, then Paul is saying, don't be what you're not. Let the Spirit of Christ develop you into what you were born to be. Let Him transform from the inside out the butterfly you're supposed to be. Your caterpillar in your way through this world right now. And you're, and you're scheming. And you're shaping yourself like all the other caterpillars so you don't stand out. But that's not what you were born to do. You have met Christ. The hope of glory. And Christ transforms from the inside out. And so Christ wants to go through this process with you. And it's sometimes painful. And it's slow. And when it goes into the cocoon, it stays there a while. And it disappears from view. And your transformation is at your pace. And that's why at the garden, I'm not here to try to tell you what I think you should be. I'm here to love you where you are. Believing that you're either going to conform into what you think I think you should be, or you'll transform into who you are in Christ. And I'm not going to preach conformity so that you become what I think you should be. But I am going to preach metamorphosis, transfiguration, transformation, the process by which the Holy Spirit brings the real you to life. Because you got, you got baggage. You got a false version of yourself. You need it to sound more like Jesus? You got chaff in the midst of your wheat. And Jesus is the one with a fan in his hand, separating wheat from chaff. Now you got all of it. You got wheat and chaff. You'll never find a stalk of wheat and got some chaff. But the chaff's not what you eat. The wheat's what makes good bread. Nobody goes, you want some of this chaff bread? no that that needs to go into a furnace and that's exactly what the holy spirit is doing in all of us burning into the furnace what isn't really you he takes one look at margie loves her loves her infinitely loves her doesn't love her so she'll change he loves her just as she is and he keeps pouring that love on her and the result of pouring that love on her is fire burns chaff so whatever in her isn't the real margie starts to burn up the more she's with christ the more she allows the holy spirit to do his work what isn't real about her starts to vanish i don't get to say how fast that has to be i don't get to judge her journey along the way and say she's not meeting up to our standards of transformation we don't have standards of transformation we have a christ 
It's why we stand up here every week and we ask him to forgive us of our sins. I don't do it because I don't think I'm forgiven. I do it because I need to convince me that he has done it. I don't pray it so he'll forgive me. I pray it so I'll forgive me. I don't give my Christian confession because I'm getting saved every week. I give my Christian confession because I need convinced sometimes that I'm saved every week. <laughs> because it's an expression of what I am, not just what I wish I was, but what I really am in spite of all the other stuff that doesn't look like me. How do we get to transformation? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, I got to hurry. I know I've went... I'm blasting full speed this morning, aren't I? You're just going nuts. I'm going to shut it down, I promise. We're going to, we're going to close it real, real quick. How do we transform? Renew your mind. Notice you don't squeeze, fight, jump, work, beg, fast, tithe, give, go, do, disciplines, read. If I do all this stuff, God will transform me. No, we transform by renewing our mind. We change our mind about God and we do it constantly. We let him renew us. And let me tell you what we need renewed away from. We need to renew our minds away from the insanity of religious performance because so many of us have been made spiritually insane by all the things we think we have to do for a God that's mad at us. You need to renew your mind away from the insanity of religious performance. That's step, I think it's actually step one for most of us. Renew your mind away from this God who's always on the demands and on the prowl and on the hunt. And reacquaint yourself with Jesus, the lover of your soul. Peer into the spear pierced side. Find his heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen to what it says. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive all their ignorances. They don't, not, they don't know what they're doing. Father, we love them. We have to forgive them. So I don't get to tell you how fast you're supposed to transform, but I'm not going to stop preaching transformation because it's part of our experience but I'm not preaching it as a hoop to jump through. You're not going to come in here and me go, did you do your five things this week? Five steps to transformation. Don't buy that book. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a book, but it probably is. I'm sure it exists. Don't buy you don't need five steps. There's no such thing because that would indicate that if someone had a sixth step, then they have a step you don't know about. Or that some people are so good, they're shortcutting it with four steps. No steps. For transformation, I don't, there's no step. There's Christ. We let him do it at his speed. Let's close in 2 Corinthians 3. I want to show you the fourth usage of metamorpho. It doesn't, they don't hit us to our eyeball because they're in English. And we're not going to see them because it wasn't written in English. But I'll help you. Here it is. It's an amazing one. It's a great one to land our feet on on a Sunday morning. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Now, 2 Corinthians 3 is an amazing chapter. Go read it on your own. And when you do, you'll find that you are no longer reading the Bible with a veil over your face. And that because you've accepted Christ and because you believe on Jesus, He's pulling the veil off. It's a phrase we like to say, the wool's been pulled over your eyes. Jesus pulls the wool off your eyes. You get to see for what you really are, and He's okay with that. Don't hide. Okay? We hide under legalisms. We don't hide in grace. Legalism teaches you to hide. It teaches you to hide who you really are because everybody will judge you. Okay? There's no room for that. We don't get anywhere hiding who we are. But if we'll 
pull the veil off, look face to face to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with an unveiled face behold as if we were looking into a mirror the glory of the Lord. And we're being metamorpho, transformed, transfigured. We're being transfigured into the same image, into the image we're looking at. Who are we looking at? Jesus. We're being transformed into the same image, not from performance to performance, not even from day to day, not from week to week, from glory to glory. Well, pastor, what's glory to glory? Great question. Nobody gets to answer that for you. That's revelation to revelation. That's your experience with God, not my experience with God. That's not Sunday go to meeting. That's not read 10 chapters. That's not fast till you get it. That's not fake it till you make it. That's glory to glory. He's the glorious one. We're spending time with him. And as he reveals himself in us, we transform. Things begin to change as we stare at Jesus and we spend time with Jesus. And it's why we don't have time to come in here on Sunday morning and waste time with a lot of frivolities of religion when we only have so much space in which to cram as much Jesus as we can. And we have fun and we laugh and we love one another, but we don't have time to be political. And we don't have time to figure out who's going to win every game. And we don't have time for 12 minutes on the weather. We need Jesus. We can have all that other stuff elsewhere. But in here, the only way we're going to change, the only way we're going to metamorphosize into what we were born to be, reflections of the Almighty, is more Jesus. More Jesus. And let you have your pace. I won't grab your hand and pull you. I won't slow you down. You're going too fast. But where you are, we want to meet you there. Look to Jesus and be transfigured. Would you bow your heads with me? Lately, I've been doing three prayers at the garden, if you've noticed. I do a prayer right here at the end of the sermon in which I pray this seed drops into your soul. And, and I pray that differently every week. I just try to listen to the Spirit. And then we do our confession, confession of the Apostles' Creed and forgiveness of sins. And we do that to link us to the church that's way older and bigger than us. And it gives us a common confession. And then we pray over the Eucharist and we invite you forward. And we're going to do those today. And I want you to just listen in your own spirit. And wherever you want to pray, when we pray the confession, we pray forgiveness of sins, pray it with us. Wherever you are on the journey is good. All right? Wherever you are on the journey is you. Father, thank you for this room. Thank you for all of these men and women today and these kids who, they're so precious in your sight. They are your offspring. Thank you for this message of transfiguration. Thank you for this amazing story. I hope we haven't been technical. I hope we've been a bit poetic. I hope we've made it into the story that gives us the chance for, a, a, the space for imagination. And in imagining, we're seeing all of these beautiful images that happen at transfiguration. And Jesus transfigured before us means that he was transfigured right in front of them. But it also means that he was transfigured so that we would watch him and know that we can be too. And that's what we're praying today. For every person in here that will let that soak into their spirit, into the soil of their heart, may this week be a week in which they begin the process of renewing their mind away from the insanity of their religious performance. They lay down 
the guilts and the shames of their past. They stop wearing the mask of their religion and they just accept who they are as your, as your son and your daughter. And they renew their mind that you're a good father and that you love them and they watch what you do and they listen. And as they listen, they become pliable and they're transfigured into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?